Dylan Terrell is the co-founder and chief business officer of ASOC, a financial platform that combines the ease of mobile interaction and extraordinary customer service to provide financial products. ASOC's actually funded by Silicon Valley's biggest VCs, like 500 Startups, Catalyst Fund, Resolute Ventures, and even Social Capital. Unlike traditional lending institutions, ASOC doesn't necessarily just use credit to determine your eligibility, but uses loan history and other data points. ASOC champions financial inclusion in Africa, starting out in Kampala, Uganda. According to the World Bank, over 65% of the population doesn't have access to formal credit lending institutions, which makes it really hard for the economy to grow. ASOC is here to provide entrepreneurs with the tools to succeed, like credit and financial technology. Dylan co-founded ASOC with some friends and is now based in San Francisco, where he helps bridge opportunities with lenders and borrowers across the world. Hey! This is Things Have Changed. Your hosts, Jed, Shikhar, and Adrian, are just trying to figure it out, including this intro. We meet pioneers, break down topics, and have a laugh. Welcome to the conversation. So I think the whole episode is going to be super fun because the second we heard about you, Dylan, and the fact that the company that you're working at is in the financial sector, uh, providing financial services to economies in Africa. That's such a unique proposition. And Africa is one of, has some of the fastest growing economies in the world. It's been getting a lot of news. Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter and Square, wants to move there for like six months this year, <laughs> which is crazy. Which is like in the middle of elections and all this yeah, shit that's yeah. going on. Jeez, big yeah, times for Twitter. So yeah. you have Jumia that went public, the Amazon of Africa, went public on the New York Stock Exchange. You have like record funding going into the startups coming out of Africa. So we thought that having you on here would be great to understand what it takes to actually build and scale something like this something that ASAC is building, what led to this move, what led to the thought process that goes into building what you're trying to do. So I guess that would be the first thing we'd like to, to dive into is um, the motivations of, of building something like ASAC, especially from uh, the Western world, I guess, from San Francisco specifically. Yeah, outside looking in um, definitely makes sense. So I'll just give you a quick background about how we started. I think that sort of tells a story about you know why we came to this problem and, and why we decided to attack it, why we thought you know we were the right people. Um, so initially, the team was working on an Engineers Without Borders project uh, based out of rural Uganda, and so the idea was to provide farmers with agriculture uh, machinery um, and also teaching them about how to use it. Uh, and this was really for the rural poor. So we're talking like subsistence farmers; they might have an acre or two of land um, in their milling and, and farming like rice and cassava uh, and, and potatoes. And, and so really not, you know, doing anything like economically substantial, but enough for their families. And so from there, you know, doing all these focus groups, uh, we saw the, or the team saw 
that it wasn't you know, necessarily the agriculture uh, sort of machinery that was the issue. It was more of the inputs. So you would have a given farmer, for example, you know, you talk to a guy that would say, hey, I have two acres of land, um, but I can only afford to plant one of them. You know, I, I can only afford to provide seed and fertilizer for one acre. And that's enough to feed my family, but it's not enough to like grow profitably. Uh, I can't, you know, support other parts of my family. I can't grow out of this. And so we thought this is obviously a problem. And we asked, why can't you just go to the bank and get a loan? And so the guy would look at us and say, it's just too hard. You know, you would go to the bank and in maybe three to five weeks, you would hear back. And oftentimes it would be a no. Uh, you would have to be at the bank all day. You would have to bring in your family, your children. You would have to get approval from like the local council. It was wow. just a really broken process, just really crazy. Jeez. Yeah, and, and so we would, and, and then that's time away from you know working on the field or taking up other work somewhere else. Uh, and Ugandan entrepreneurs and African entrepreneurs, I think in, in general, I, I consider all these guys entrepreneurs because they're small business owners. They're very um, motivated. They, they like to hustle, you know, whatever they can to, to you know, to survive, essentially. Um, and so working with them, it just seemed like a perfect relationship. We, we decided to, you know, from that very moment, hey, let's just lend out our money and see what happens. You know, we can make some interest back, which is always a good thing. Everyone gets happy on each side. Uh, and then we can just, you know, sort of remove the banks from this process. We can underwrite somebody in a couple of days, if, you know, even if that, uh, maybe it's a couple hours. And so it really started as a hobby, to be honest, uh, never was meant to be, you know, a giant business or, or anything like a startup. It was just meant to be like, hey, this is something we could do. Maybe it's a nonprofit, maybe for profit. Uh, let's just see where it goes. And so from there, I mean, word quickly spread. It was um, kind of funny. We had a, a guy um, who started this company um, as well called Kaivan. And people in Uganda can't really comprehend that name. They're like, is his name <laughs> Ivan? Like, what, what, what is his name? And so they would have, <laughs> they would have people, you know, walking around um, in Soroti in the, in the town where we started uh, asking for Ivan. And they're like, where's this Ivan guy that I, you know, he gave me some money. Um, or, and then the other one was when we first started with the name Asak. Asak means harvest. So we, you know, really rooted in that farmer sort of mission. Um, and they thought oh. that was Isaac. So they'd be walking around like, where's this guy Isaac uh, <laughs> that I can get alone? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so really from there, you know, word spread and it quickly became a business. So it was just like, all right, we have to form this as soon as possible. It was like, let's just go for it. Um, and, and that's sort of where we began. It was our mission just to help farmers and then and move to other types of businesses and just iterated from there. So for, I mean, I'm just thinking about how um, you came into this really technological solution for the, the mobile app, right? Yeah. Is it, is it because a lot of um, the Ugandans had access to cell phones? Absolutely, absolutely. So in, in rural Uganda, it's kind of surprising. Like most people speak English extremely well, uh, and a lot of them have access to smartphones. Um, if not a smartphone, then a feature phone, uh, usually like one per household. Oh. Um, and, and it worked really well for you know people that are in the villages. They can't commute to the, the central town where like the MFI branches or the bank branches, uh, but they can apply for a loan you know, in the remote village where there's still like 3G internet access. So we said, wait a minute, let's just not make them come all the way to a village or to a city to get a loan where they might get denied. Let's just have them apply from the comfort of their own home. Uh, they can do this super easily and may take five to 10 minutes. And, you know, this is in the local language, also in English. And then from there, we can credit score them and do that whole process. But we just wanted to make it as friendly and easy as possible. 
So um, in the, the, you mentioned MFIs, I'm thinking you're, you're talking about microfinancing institutions? Yes. Yes. Okay. So those institutions are um, largely asking people in person to come in in person. That's right. That's right. Okay. You'll definitely see them doing field work as well, but uh, it's definitely, let's do it all in person. And it's a similar like slow process as the banks. Interesting. I would think, I would think they would, they would go out there and and try to do that stuff because that's the unaddressed population for microfinancing. Right. Yeah, okay. you, you would think. Uh, I think they're trying to, you know, their business as well, trying to make money as much as possible. Um, and I guess it's just a little bit operational heavy uh, and, and too hard to work with t- some certain types of the population. Do you guys add a personal touch as well? I mean, they tend to travel to the cities and get these loans from the financial institutions after having these conversations. So right. is it just mobile only or is it, you know, mobile plus having... I don't know, a consultant or a agent that they can chat to? It's sort of both, depending on the route that people want to go. Um, okay. So now we have you know, people that are meeting uh, farmers or small business owners in the field. Uh, and then we have people that are just doing it all automated uh, right from their smartphone. It really just depends on the path that they want to take. And then certain times, like we'll get enough information up front, uh, or so we think, and then we just need something else. So we follow up with that person, we'll do a home visit, or we'll invite them into the office. So, I mean, essentially what it boils down to is just building that like customer trust. We want to make sure that, hey, they know that, you know, their collateral is safe for us, for with example, you know, or um, that we're just like a trustworthy person that we're not going to run away with their money, et cetera. So we want to make sure that we're building that trust uh, from the beginning. So if they want to work with us in person, we'll do that. If not, you know, no problem. So you mentioned trust, uh, trying to learn if you can trust them and if they can trust you. How, yep. What was your process in building these relationships with the local population? Was it difficult to gain their trust at first? Did you? How did it differ to kind of building trust with businesses in the U.S.? I think that's really important. So one thing that we do from all of our clients and one thing we ask for is collateral in all of our loans. And so the reason why is that we want to make sure that they have enough skin in the game where they feel like, hey, I need to pay this back or I'm going to lose you know, this piece of collateral, whether that's land or a vehicle. Uh, Etc. And oftentimes, you know, before we came into the picture, you would have like a local money lender. It could be almost like a loan shark. Like somebody would go and like get a payday loan, like really high interest, like not really mm-hmm. affordable. Um, but they would park their bike there, or they had parked their piece of land, and then all of a sudden that person would disappear. So they're really weary of working with money lenders. And initially, you know, that's what we were. We were a money lender. Um, and so we had to, you know, build that trust and show them, hey, we're not like all these other people, we're here to stay. We have offices, you know, we're very established. And it's it's kind of hard when you are, you know, people from the West coming into the country. So luckily, you know, part of our founding team, we had Ugandans who could like sort of speak the language, you know, not just literally, but also, you know, figuratively give that comfort that, hey, you know, we're, we're in this together. You know, we, we want to be partnering for the long term. Um, and then that's sort of reflective in our terms of how we offer products. So when you first sign up for a loan, it might be a little bit expensive, but as you continue that process, it, it will get cheaper and cheaper. Uh, and really, that, that's laid out right from the beginning. Like, we want to make it as easy for them as it is for us, if that makes sense. Got it. There was something on the website, I think, uh, when I was looking over the ways in which you decide somebody's eligible. So one of, one of the things you were talking about was collateral. How else do you, do you decide if somebody's eligible? Sure. So right in our 
uh, application. So somebody can fill out, it's, it takes about five to 10 minutes, depending on the person. Uh, we ask them behavioral questions. Um, so it's almost like a, a game, like a psychological game. Like if you were in this situation, what would you do? Uh, and that tells us a lot. And then also if they're applying on a smartphone, um, we can pull data right from their smartphone. So we look at, it's a little creepy, but it, it works very well. <laughs> Uh, uh, and Everybody's it, doing it, that already, dude. Yes, so. <laughs> and, and we're, you know, we, we announced that right from the beginning. Like, hey, we might look at your data if you're interested. Like, please say yes. If not, you know, you don't have to opt into that. Yeah. Um, but we look at things like phone logs, for example, location data. We look at how contacts are stored. And all of these, you know, might have uh, an indication of risk or an indication of repayment. Um, one of the bigger things that we look at since, you know, mobile money is so popular over there, like similar to the Venmo system or PayPal here, um, everything is conducted through that. So utility payments, um, if you're paying a friend, you have a loan outstanding, et cetera. So we can look at all of that. Uh, and that tells us a lot, you know, people are willing to repay their utility bill. Most likely they're willing to repay us. You know, microfinance in, in general kind of gets a bad rap. So it's kind of cool to see how you guys are trying to make it a bit more personal. So do you guys have a certain comfort zone, like a Goldilocks zone that you kind of look at to decide between opportunity and profit? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, th there's one particular point, you know, we, we give when someone applies for a loan, for example, um, we give them an ASAC credit score that we call it. So there's no like formal credit score uh, there as there is in America. Uh, and yeah. we have a credit box, right? So based on the lenders that we have that you know, provide us capital for us to lend to, to these borrowers, uh, we make a decision. So if nice. you, you can think of it as like a risk rating from zero to 100. And then we further rank that into like letter. Uh, so it's like A through D. So we have like an A credit would be perfect. Like this person has like very good credit history. We can view all of their documents. And then a D would obviously be the worst. And then based on like our credit boxes that we have, we can either accept or deny. So sometimes we can pick somebody that seems like much higher risk. We can give them a slightly pricier loan um, and we, we can work with them. And some of our best borrowers, to be honest, started out with somebody that just had limited credit history. We just couldn't you know, understand it. So we unfortunately gave them a higher price loan. They repaid it pretty quickly. And then we you know, reduced it from there. Cool. So with time, you know, based on how the repayment goes, their ASA credit improves and they benefit by being in this relationship longer and longer. Yes, absolutely. And then from our standpoint, uh, we, we can provide them like multiple types of credit. So, you know, if they have something for their, just for their personal life or for their business, we're like a one-stop shop. Holy. Gotcha. That's cool, man. So wait, um, do you think this uh this credit indicator or their scores can can be used in in other parts of the economy like have you guys talked about that like out, um giving this data to somebody else for them to use for for credit monitoring because it's so not available right nobody has credit scores i, I would imagine this is exactly how it came up in developed nations as well yeah a good thing is like uh depending on the country so in uganda where we mainly operate um there's something called credit reference bureaus and so they do have not necessarily a credit score, but they're trying to build that data. And so they partner with people like us or you know, microfinance institutions and other banks to sort of get credit history data for certain people. And that's based on like their national ID. So we provide that data to that bureau um, and we tell our customers that. So 
if they perform well, you know, they might unlock a, a different type of loan that we just don't provide, or like a bigger loan that we don't provide um, from somebody else in case that you know they paid on time. And if they don't, then that's also sort of like the carrot and stick, right? So if they don't, then we report that, um, and their credit history might be uh, hurt from there on. And it's a good trend when we see from like commercial banks, they're they're sort of take up this data. Um, so we're really happy with that, and I think we're working, you know, closely with the government on that. Um, and trying to push regulation. I think it's, uh, you know, a stronger regulatory environment is better for everybody. It wow. weeds out the bad players and also keeps us, you know, uh, in, in good standing. Dude, this is crazy. So you're telling me you're helping, <laughs> you're helping build the credit economy in Uganda. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, awesome. it's, Dude. it's a great part to be a, you know, great thing to be a part of. Because I, I feel like all the, the regulations, um, even now, like in the United States, we're still building them. You know, there's so much that we're adding on to it and adding on to it. And um, people maybe from the West will have a little bit more experience with how uh, the regulatory space works, but also it is, it is a completely different economy and a completely different space. So, but there, there is value in knowing what has worked in the past, at least for our economy, I feel. And I think, you know, the push for alternative data is really moving. So if you look at, I think it was Experian, they created this thing called Experian Boost. It, it may have been Equifax, but either way, they want you to like put in data that you wouldn't normally have in your credit report. So things like um, like a Verizon bill or like a utility bill uh, and getting that in your, you know, or I think it was even like some Venmo transactions or something. But either way, it was just to show like, hey, there are more data points out there. Let's use as much as possible to build your credit score. And I think that's great. It's like a trend that, you know, we, we've seen and we're, we're sort of a part of in Africa. And we would love to have that you know, in the rest of the world. Why do you why do you think this is important, dude? Why do you think financial inclusion is important? Why 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 this mission? Well, I think it's you know coming from like the U.S., uh, it's really easy to get a loan here. Um, there are numerous providers, right? And if you have a business that's viable, more most likely you know you can find capital for that. And I think it's just really about you know equality. It's just like hey, we see a part of the world, and there's many parts of the world, not just Africa. Uh, emerging markets, developing countries, um, even developed nations that just don't have a good credit system. Uh, you see a, like a business that's really viable. They have great customers. Um, you know, they can grow beyond what they're at, but they just can't access capital. And that just seems ridiculous. And, and this sort of like payments was the first layer of this. So being able to transact with you know, people and businesses through a digital platform. And then beyond that, you know, you see financial services. So loans and, and savings and insurance and all that. And from there, I think you really bolster the economy. I think it's one of the biggest ways you can have impact. It's one of the easiest and most tangible ways of doing so. Uh, and that also translates into healthcare. So you know, have a stronger financial system, like healthcare gets better, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Do you have a Do you have a personal story that really resonates why you're so passionate about financial inclusion that really motivated you to? go into this venture and past experiences you did investment banking and uh were yeah. analysts for different banks <laughs> um, you had to go there you had to go there yeah yeah no it's fine it's funny yeah. what hits you and like emotionally mm. that really makes you passionate about this can i can i guess it was it was probably those douchebags investment <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah that'll do it that'll do it yeah i didn't last very long um i think at a school you know i didn't really know what i wanted to do um, and, and banking for me seemed like an easy way out. It's like, hey, I don't have to think about this much. It's, it's sort of hard to attain. Um, I can perhaps get good training. Let me just go for it. 
Uh, and then I quickly realized, you know, there's like after six months, you don't really learn that much. Um, there's not much like upward mobility. Most people leave after a year or two years. And so it didn't really make like sense for a long-term career. And then coming to San Francisco, I, you know, I was originally in New York, then Chicago, and then moved out here uh, for work. I, just seeing like the startup ecosystem, like how fast people move, um, you know, autonomy at all parts of like the company, it, it just seemed like the best way of doing business. So I, you know, jumped ship and, and went into the fintech space, given my financial background. Um, and then from there, you meet the right type of people and, you know, one thing led to another. And then I was at a SOC. Um, but what keeps me there and I, and I think what uh, motivates me is just being there on the ground, I think that's the most important thing. A lot of companies that are based here in the U.S., um, they stay here. You know, the majority of, uh, if you think about some of the consumer lenders that are also in Africa, like Tala and Branch are some of the biggest ones. Um, their operations are really centered here, whether in San Francisco or in L.A. In a lot of their staff that they have, you know, that's not like their founding team is based there. And I think it's really important just to have an ear on the ground and really understand what's going on and be able to speak with borrowers that are going through this problem. Um, and it's sort of what I alluded to before of meeting, you know, the, the farmers that have two acres of land or three acres of land, but they can only afford to have, you know, to, to invest in and to farm one acre. And their family is just getting by. Like there might be two, two harvests a year. There might be one harvest a year. It all depends on the weather. And so it's like, there's so many challenges that people are going through that we can solve um, and we can easily solve them through capital. So if we can uh, you know, connect investors in the Western market uh, with uh, borrowers who are you know, very credit worthy, that are just credit invisible right now, people don't know that they exist, um, we can really make a difference. And it's not like that whole, like, let me save the world type of thing. It's just like, let's just make this equal and fair playing ground. You know, it's just like, yeah. that's just how it should be. Um, and that's sort of what motivates me. It's like there, there's many pieces to this puzzle, and I think it's just broken, uh, and it's an interesting problem to fix. I still think you're Superman, but it's cool. <laughs> uh, well, I appreciate that. But no, no, I mean, just really doing, I think, what is what is meant to be done. It's not anything like noble or anything like that. It's just like, hey, this is a cool problem. We can make money while everyone else makes money. Everyone at the end of the day is happier. What do you think uh, are the most important stakeholders that could help you address this issue of being more financially inclusive? Do you think that the government is more responsible for it? Do you think that there should be more startups like yourself? Or do you want to see more involvement from other companies or the government? I think it's sort of threefold. So one would be the government. I, I, you know, we expect to see just better and tighter regulation around the whole like financial ecosystem. And so that not only you know, empowers uh, local businesses, but also it, it helps build like the credit bureau I was talking about earlier. And, and I think that's really important, uh, especially for the more rural folks. They, they really just need that. Uh, just better systems in place, I think is, is number one. Um, number two would be more involvement from the telecoms. So sort of the first layer of this whole system is like the telecom. It's, mm. it's really like the layer for payments. So the telecoms own the mobile money system. So you may have heard of like M-Pesa. Uh, it takes on different names, different forms in different countries, but essentially it's the same thing, like being able to transact through mobile phones. I think that's a big layer that just needs to be built out um, and more services enabled on. So usually that's a cold system. I think that they should be open that up a little bit more um, and allow companies like ASAC or other ones in, you know, around the 
around the world to take advantage of those programs and take advantage of like that infrastructure that they have in place. And then third, as you mentioned, is is just more companies. I think, you know, this is a wide open space. Um, competition is really good. You know, maybe a SAC isn't the best player for this market, you know, for the long term. Who knows? Uh, I think it would be great if just more startups are coming in with different ideas and innovating. Um, and then sort of like a demand from those guys in particular, is just like build better products that are more sustainable for the borrower. I think there's a lot of startups that come in thinking, you know, they can acquire a bunch of users really quickly. They can raise money from Silicon Valley uh, and they can, I don't want to say it, but like seemingly taking advantage of local population. Like some of our lending companies that we compete with, they charge extremely high interest rates that are just not sustainable. Uh, and it looks good on paper, but I, I think it will, you know, cause definitely like a debt squeeze at some point. Um, yeah. So, so you know, things like that. I mean, I could go on and on, but really just those three main things. Shacks. <laughs> Fuck those shacks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to think about what uh, what would make you different from competitors that are existing now in, in Uganda. Is it is it the fact that you're really, and, and this is just my hypothesis, but that you're really involved here, as you were speaking about earlier, you're on the ground, um, you're meeting the, the local population, you're developing relationships with government, um, you're helping the regulatory space as well. Um, what, what is it really that you think is uh, your edge as, as an ASOC? Looking at a commercial bank, it really just comes down to our tech platform. So we're beating them on speed and, and also on price, given you know lower overhead, that whole operational efficiency type of thing. Um, if we're talking about you know specific to competitors, um, so the, the good thing that we have is that we, we don't necessarily fit with one particular box. So we have competitors that you know compete with us on the consumer side, and then we have other ones that compete with us on the business side, but none that really compete with us in the middle. So we sort of do both. Um, and that, you know, by itself, I think is a great value add is that can be a one-stop shop for, you know, all these guys that are coming in. The other is that, yes, of course, we have the hybrid model where we're meeting people in person, but then they can also apply online. Um, and then in Uganda specifically, there's really only one other competitor that we have. Uh, and we're just a little bit bigger and a little bit faster than they are. Uh, so as I said before, you know, competition is welcome. It just so happens to be a little bit more of a wide open space. Um, so, you know, that will probably change in the future, but, uh, as of right now, you know, we're, we're feeling pretty healthy with the competition that we had. seems like you're making a lot of people happy in Uganda. Mm -hmm. Is, is there anyone, you know, you're, you're making mad or the competitors, <laughs> like the commercial banks or like some other people that are actually loan sharks? Like I, I would imagine there's some, a even a little bit of a pushback, right. From, oh, yeah. from some parts of the local population. So what, what, what? How does that materialize? What kind of pushbacks are there? Sure, sure. Uh, no, I mean, you definitely see it. I think the one good thing is with the commercial banks, we have pretty decent relationships. So uh, interestingly enough, um, some of the bank's own employees cannot get loans from the bank itself. So they will come to us for a loan, which is just absolutely ludicrous. Um, or they will, you know, refer you know, <laughs> borrowers to us, which is great, just, you know, based on personal relationships that we have with them. Um, what we do see more is like pushback from MFIs that are more local. Mm -hmm. So not necessarily the Finca, the BRACs of the world that are more of like a larger scale, multiple countries, multiple markets, um, but more of the local prov providers. So what we like to do is we like to work with them. Um, so we essentially partner with them. We consider them as almost as brokers and we pay them like a referral fee if they have somebody that they don't want to work with um, or that they can't work with, for example. Um, a lot of these are like what they call credit cooperatives or SACOs, 
um, and savings, I think, savings and credit cooperatives, something mm. like that. Uh, and so we work with them directly. We think of like, hey, we can be an auxiliary service to your members. Uh, we can provide you know loans at a larger scale, perhaps, uh, maybe a little bit quicker, but then we'll give you a kickback for working with us. And that's the best way that we found to, to handle that situation because we've definitely been in the, the problem where people are running negative ads about us in the newspaper or radio. Oh, uh, so we definitely have to be careful. So you know, you're always going to deal with that no matter where you are. Um, and then I, I think when you're disturbing local economies, you know, you're also going to have pushback. Yeah. But luckily, you know, if you're compliant with the government, you know, there's not much they can do on that side. And then if you're trying to treat people as best as possible, then you're going to be okay. So how was it for you, dude? Like you, you, you went to Africa yeah. and had to meet the local population. You had to hire a bunch of employees, mm. this whole transition, this whole, like, I'm, I want to hear this story, man. Like what were the, what yeah. were some parts that were exciting for you? What were some parts that you were scared for your damn life? Like what, <laughs> You know, like the juice, <laughs> give me the cheese. Yeah. Um, I mean, initially, it's just everything happens so fast that you just sort of, I don't know, you're immune to any change. Uh, so basically, you know, for us, we we were around for a while, right? We, we were lending and sort of like a hobby, as I mentioned before, uh, turned into a business. And then we were like, hey, we need to raise money. We were able to quickly raise, you know, Silicon Valley uh, equity money. And, you know, that sort of propelled us on this journey. And then right after that, I left for Uganda. And getting there, it's like, it wasn't my first time in Africa. So I think that was helpful. Um, But it's East Africa, which is a little bit different than West, where I'd spent some time. Um, in, in going into the city, Kampala, life is definitely different than San Francisco. I mean, you can get a lot of the modern conveniences. You can get an Uber anywhere you want. You can uh, hail a motorcycle taxi. You can stay in an Airbnb, etc. Um, but it's also just different. Like people look at you. You know, I'm I'm white, so yeah. I obviously don't blend in, uh, regardless of where I go. And it's just you know these are adjustments that you have to make, and how you approach yeah. people is is you know you have to be maybe learn a few words of the local language, et cetera, just to have a smoother time and, and make sure that you're taking care of people, et cetera. Um, but overall, I mean, it's, it's not, it wasn't anything crazy, you know, it's just like eventually people accept you. They, they start seeing you, you're local at certain places and yeah. life gets you know, better and better. Um, there's definitely some sketchy moments, you know, when you're <laughs> walking home late at night uh, after a long day at the office and some guys following you. And then I think, the way that people break down is like if you approach them first rather than, you know, waiting for them to come to you wow. uh, and then having a conversation. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting in Uganda in particular is like we could be literally seemingly at war with a client. Like they do not want to pay us. They want to sue us, whatever it is. And at the end of the day, like we're all shaking hands, we're laughing, we're hugging. It's like it's such a, a different type of environment. It's like people don't stay angry at you. People don't get aggressive with you for a long time. Uh, people are really willing to have that conversation, which I was really appreciative, especially as a foreigner. It's like, let me just yeah. be come as local as possible. Uh, try to speak the language, you know, try to eat their food, et cetera, and, and just really try to blend in. And I think that just made for a more smoother experience. Wow. So you learned to be very direct. Yes. Yes. <laughs> How did you start learning, you know, the the local language? What did you who did you engage? Like what kinds of did you take some classes on the side? Did you there was there a government program or some shit for for um foreigners to come in and like learn about this shit or whatever? Like how did you do it? 
the co-founding team um, that were Ugandan. So they knew everything. It's just basically like become, became our guides in a way. And then they, you know, at a certain point, like after a couple of weeks, they're like, all right, you just got to, you know, be thrown into the fire. It's like, you're going to make mistakes. Like you're going to, something's going to go wrong, but that's how you learn. And you learn as quickly as possible. So they were there to help us. Like, here's, you know, the places you should go, the places you should avoid. Here's like some language, like, you know, some basic stuff that you need to know. Um, and, and that really helped us like extremely grateful for those guys. There's definitely, you know, classes you could take while there, but it was really just, let me just live like a local, so to speak, like, where do they go? Where do they eat? All that stuff. Um, and that really helps. Which language is this? Uh, so depending on the region of Uganda or in Kenya, where we also operate, um, in Kampala specifically, uh, you have a few different languages. Um, one, the most popular is called Luganda. Um, and Uganda. then, yes, which sounds like Uganda, but with an L. Yeah. Uh, and then the other region where we operate primarily is called Atesso. Um, so it's the Tessa region and the language is Atesso. Yeah. Why did you choose to work with micro, small and medium enterprises as your target customers? Is there, uh, is it easier to scale that way? Do you think you can make the most impact with these uh, size businesses or um, is this kind of your way of entering the market and trying to grow from smaller loans? Really in, in Uganda, talking about a population of about 40 million people uh, and 90% wow. or more of those uh, say adults are, are not working a corporate job. I think it's maybe even like 2% of people are working like a salary job. The rest are operating small businesses, whether they are a taxi driver, or they operate, you know, a small retail shop, uh, something like that. So that was like our really way in. It wasn't that we were lending to individuals, but we're lending to like small businesses because uh, that's what the most of the population was. Uh, even farmers, they, they might not just be a farmer. They might have, you know, a small farm stand in the local town or, you know, they might have a, some other sort of hustle. Um, and so really that's what the population we wanted to address. It seemed like the most in need population uh, and also just the largest. And how did you get your first customers? Um, what was your strategy? Was it all word of mouth? Were you guys reaching out to people, going walking on the farms in your boots? Uh, what, what was that like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so luckily, since we were able to go from the Engineers Without Borders project, so that was started through Columbia University, we kind of were on the heels of that. So they had a bunch of like focus groups that were already established. So literally be like a thousand farmers, a thousand business owners that would come to the town to listen to these guys, to help them, you know, with their projects, essentially. So from there, we would be able to be like, hey, if you need a loan, come to us up, like right at the end. And then you would have literally like half of those people, if not more, like come up to your office or come up to, at the time, that was our co-founder's house uh, and knock on the door and be like, I need a loan. Uh, and that really helps, you know, just kick off everything. Because um, initially, you know, as I mentioned, we weren't really going to be a business. So we didn't really care about acquiring customers. It was just like, let's fulfill a need. And then the demand sort of took over from there. Um, so I guess I think I kind of want to learn more about uh, your kind of like transition into this kind of life, right? So you had, I mean, I guess I guess it was it was short your time in a in a really corporate job, and then you went to I'm going to call it saving the world, but <laughs> <laughs> you came into this yeah. uh, to this space of like startups and and doing things abroad. Like, how did how was that transition like? Like you're learning a lot of things, solving a lot of cool ass problems. Like what, 
what were the things that went through your head? What were like those challenges that you had? Like, you know, traveling to Africa is in, in it is in itself a huge burden. I feel like that's more than 24 hours of travel or something. You'd always come home like really tired and stuff. Like when we were living together, like that's crazy, dude. The thing is, I, I guess it was more of a smoother transition than I made it to seem. So after about a year of investment banking, I joined a startup called Lending Home. And so Lending Home provided mortgages online. Uh, and I was there for about two years while sort of building a SOC uh, part-time. And so that allowed for the transition to be a little bit smoother. Like I just learned a ton. It was a small startup at the time that grew into like a multi-billion dollar business while I was there. And so I got to see it, you know, how, a, how a business really fundamentally works and how they acquire customers and grow and all that stuff. So it was great training. It was like boot camp for me. Um, and then we applied a lot of that because uh, another co-founder, Kaivan, who came from uh, the data science team, uh, he was also part of a SOC. Uh, we just sort of learned together and then we iterated from there. Um, and I think that's, that was like the really strong foundation that we both had. Uh, and then, you know, it's a living to, in, in Uganda. It was easy. And, in, and a lot of times, to be honest, it was better. Like working with people and, and living with the same people is just like, a lot more fun, like a lot of energy. We're all living in the same house. You know, we're together like pretty much 24 seven, like just a great community of people that are just dedicated to something. Uh, and then coming back to the Bay area and, you know, people are doing their different things. It takes like a week to schedule plans. It's like very impersonal and walking down the hallway, people don't say, Hey to you. Uh, you don't, if you stop and talk to somebody in a cafe, God forbid, like they'll look at you funny. Uh, so it was like, for me, it, it was exactly what I needed at the time. Uh, you know, life is not necessarily glamorous. You know, the power might go out. You might not have hot water. Um, but other than that, it, it's pretty great. The food's good. People are nice. Like, what else could you need? It's it's a pretty good way of life, I think. Um, and then also a great thing that they have there, which they should have here, are motorcycle taxis. Like, the best invention ever. Mm, uh, yeah. Some guy pulls up, you hop on the back, you pay him a couple of bucks, he takes you anywhere you want. You hug um, him. Yeah, <laughs> you, you basically... Up. Like you're you're nut to butt, uh, <laughs> but it's a great time. So Dylan, when did you feel most vulnerable when you transitioned from uh, doing this as like a hobby on the side and going and fully committing? Like this is going to be my full time job. I'm like committing to it completely. So there was a period of time where I knew I had to leave my current job. So that was working at lending home, um, but we weren't we didn't have the money at a sock to pay for people to go full time, but I just knew that I needed to like, uh, you know, work was distracting. Essentially. I wanted to build something. Um, so it was a period of time, you know, where you just, I wasn't earning a salary and we were raising money at the time, but it was taking a little bit, um, you know, being an African FinTech startup, you get a lot of no's. Like we pitched, I think must've been 150 investors in person dialing on the phone, all that stuff. And you just get a shit ton of no's. Um, so there was a lot of uncertainty there is like, is this even going to work out? Am I leaving a stable job for something that's just a pipe dream? Um, and then once it finally did work out, it's just like, great. And you celebrate for like 20 minutes and then you go back to work. Uh, and we've definitely had a lot of ups and downs. You know, we've had co-founder issues, unfortunately, we've had to let go a lot of people. We've, we've, we've gone through it. Um, and our journey has not been linear, you know, by any means. Um, and, and so in those times you question everything, uh, but I think it's, you, you get renewed, you know, hope, you know, being with the people that you work with, um, but then also the people you serve, you, you just realize like, this is the best place for me, you know, the, where I can dedicate the most time and it actually makes sense. Cool. 
So I wanted to bring up to the audience and all the listeners that Dylan is an actor on the side. <laughs> oh, really? We have been waiting to get to We have been waiting. This is the highlight, basically. I wanted to ask, have you ever applied or how have you used your acting career to uh, do these VC pitches with investors? Um, are there certain techniques you've found effective? Some things you've noticed when you're <laughs> pitching to these investors? You know, taking a step back, I, I dove into acting because I, I felt like I was a bit shy. Uh, in a lot of these meetings and, and just in general. And so I thought I needed a way to like sort of get out of my, my head um, and, and sort of be, you know, who I'm actually, not just somebody that's behind this shell, so to speak. Um, so being able to, you know, jump into a meeting with a guy who has a net worth of a billion dollars, uh, who runs a fund that's you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, you obviously get nervous. But being able to act in the moment, you know, especially through improv, it allows you to think on your feet and then really get out of your own head. And it's been extremely valuable for me, not just, you know, in VC pitches, but also in just everyday life. Um, and, and I owe it a lot. Um, being able to just have something creative, you know, outside of work, I think is really important, not just for entrepreneurs, but for everybody. Yeah. Um, so it's been definitely a blessing for me. Wow. So you have a sock to thank for your acting career. Yes, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yes. I would have never thought that a startup yep. would get you to start acting. That's very cool. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but it helps stress too. I think, you know, you just need an outlet sometimes and just like other people yeah. who don't know anything about startups just to have a conversation with. I think the Bay Area often, unfortunately, is a little bit of a bubble where everyone has this idea. And if you're an entrepreneur, like they want to pitch you theirs and, you know, all that stuff. And it's great. I, you know, I love that. But uh, sometimes you know, it probably won't go anywhere, but it's just fun in the meantime. Hey, you never know. It's a hobby now and who knows where you end up. <laughs> So, so let's educate the audience yeah. a little bit about what the type of acting um, Dylan sure. does. Dylan, could you kind of go over that? My acting career is, is very much just new. It, it started, I mean, I've taken classes for a couple of years now, but um, this past year, 2019, was really where things kicked into gear as far as like producing content. So it's mostly been short films uh, and I've done a couple plays um, and then a couple like unpublished web series stuff. But I think that's usually how it begins. Like if you want to be an actor, you usually start like either producing your own content or, you know, working on small productions that are doing like short films and then working your way from there. Uh, the idea, if you are yeah. curious about the trajectory, it's usually like you do a little bit of that. You, you build what's called a reel, sort of like a demo, and then you try to find an agent and then the rest goes on from there. Um, I'm not necessarily interested in it like full time, um, you know, you know, maybe, you know, whoever knows, but. It's just a good sort of side project thing. So, so you went from uh, working in IB full time, then creating a side hobby that you were interested in solving a problem, and eventually going into full time, then going into being a part of this movement of giving access to people um, in developing countries for capital and really improving their lives, helping them with their businesses. So, I want to ask, what advice would you give to someone young? Um, some millennial out there that might be working in investment banking or working a job that they might not feel as fulfilled, or maybe they're thinking about ideas or dreaming about something, but they just don't have that uh, that confidence to go into it. What advice would you give uh, to people to really find what they're passionate about, to try new things, and to just figure out what their life calling is? Um, 
you know, saving the world as you are. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny when people reach out to me that they seemingly do all the time from my school or other schools um, to ask about, you know, investment banking, how to get in, uh, that, that sort of thing. It's such like a rigorous process. Um, but I always ask them, you know, why they want to do it. And, and some of them are just really gung-ho that you know, they've always wanted to be an IB. Um, some of them are just a little bit unsure. And so for those guys, like, I really want to make sure that they understand the options that are available. And I would recommend that to anybody is just like, you have to really understand what's out there for you. Uh, there's a lot, whether that's a startup or a corporate job or, you know, building your own like Shopify store or something. Uh, there's, there's a lot of options, right? And I think people don't necessarily know that and they end up picking one thing and sticking with that. And that's the rest of, you know, they go from there. Um, so that's one. And then I think, you know, part of that is like networking. Um, I think that's something that everybody says, like just network more. Uh, but I think going a little bit deeper than that is like, that, that's hard to do. I think taking action is really easy and that you go on LinkedIn maybe once a day or once a week. And then you look for people that have an interesting path. Like maybe they're doing something on their own or um, they're in some corporate job or whatever it is. Uh, and you find that interesting. And I think a lot of times people will respond and it's a numbers game, unfortunately, but a lot of times they do. People love to talk about themselves. Uh, and just by asking questions, I think you can learn a lot. And it's like the easiest way to get advice. It's like, don't watch YouTube videos about what to do because that's just going to be uh, you know, too much noise, just ask, you know, particular people or people that you like, um, or people that you haven't met yet. Uh, and I think that's, you know, extremely valuable. Um, and then sort of like the existential question of like, what's my purpose, that type of thing that just takes self-discovery, I think is just like, you have to be really honest with yourself, you know, write a lot, you know, journal, that type of thing that's helped me. Um, and even, I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to be doing. I don't think really anybody does, but we're just on this ride, you know, and just seeing where things go. Um, but yeah, I mean, to boil it down, I'd say like just network and explore as much as possible. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's hard to think about what the possibilities are, but taking action, you can really explore things and figure it out. Yeah, it just takes going to Africa to figure yourself out, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go to Africa and, and save yourself. Um, yeah. That's where you'll discover. And you. find yourself. Uh, yeah. You can do some eat, pray, love type of thing. <laughs> Dude, I need to um, Africa movie. with some hippopotamuses. <laughs> that movie, although is really shitty, it has like a good premise. But uh, yeah, watching some white lady find herself, not, not the most. <laughs> <laughs> that's all you need, man. That's all you need. Indeed, indeed. Dude. I've been itching to ask you this question. Sure. Like the second you brought up acting, right? Yes. Okay, what, what does he find harder? What does he find more uncomfortable? Standing in front of like VCs mm. and asking them and pitching your, your idea, pitching your business mm. or like, you know, auditioning for a gig? I think for me, it's auditioning. Um, like with VCs, I feel like I've done it so much oh. that it's just on maybe that just sort of discredits VCs, but it's just like, it's on like, <laughs> I just know my story really well, but like auditioning, you get nervous and then you sort of, you're in the moment and you forget about it. Um, but I think, yeah, with VCs, it's, it's usually easy. You know, VCs, I think get a bad rep as like these evil guys that are like super hard to like break down, but they're just regular people. They put their pants on same, same way we do every day. Um, you know, they're easy to break down uh, and easy to chat with. And, and most of them are very friendly. They're willing to help you. So, that was our conversation with Dylan Terrell, co-founder and chief business officer of ASAC. To learn more about his company and what they do, you could visit them at asac.co. That's A-S-A-A-K 
www.thingsofchange.co. Thanks for listening to Things Have Changed. Be sure to subscribe to never miss an episode and follow us on our Instagram at THC underscore pod. We're going to see you next time.